You're on final approach. The runway's just ahead, but something's wrong. Your altimeter reads 300 feet. Too high. Your airspeed is too fast. A roaring warning. Determined, you cut the power, tap the rudder and angle down. The plane shuddering in protest. The airframe trembles as the airspeed defies your efforts. The threshold approaches, time slipping away. Gritting your teeth, you dive, but control remains elusive. The runway's end rushes towards you. You flare, but it's futile. The plane won't obey. In a heart-stopping twist, you shove the stick, the ground collides, and you bounce back up. Another push, the nose wheel collapses, metal screams, and the world stops. Adrenaline fills your senses, the aftermath silent. The smell of rubber, the sight of damage, a stark reminder of the fine line between success and catastrophe. Today, we're diving into the crucial topic for all pilots, the importance of making decisions to execute a go-around and top tips to help you avoid them. I'm going to answer all this and more coming right up. So strap in and let's get into it. G'day everyone and welcome to episode 91 of the Flight Training Australia podcast, the podcast all about flight training and flying in Australia and beyond. I'm your host Trent Robinson, thank you for joining me. Well, another air show has been successfully completed, this time the Pacific Air Show, the first time coming to Australia. Uh, looks like uh, a lot of people had a lot of fun. It was certainly looking uh, a little bit concerning to begin with. People were worrying about the, uh, the the standard of performers and the quality of the show, but it seems like it all came together well. Some uh, interesting feedback from everyone with the uh, event being successful and no doubt now uh, proving the concept next uh, one will be even bigger and better. So looking forward to that. If you uh, went, yeah, let me know what you thought and uh, share your photos. All right. um, Before we get into today's episode on missed approaches and go-arounds, I just want to quickly touch on foreign license conversion. Now, it's sort of an interesting topic to have sort of been tossing up whether to do an episode exclusively for it or not but I guess I'm talking to mostly people that are already uh, got the license and don't need to do it but as the question comes up commonly on online forums and that sort of thing I thought I'd just touch on it quickly just to give you all a bit of an idea of what happens and how it works so that if you get asked you uh, have a bit more of an idea and how to guide people. Now one of the biggest factors in a foreign conversion is students needing uh, to verify, or pilots rather, verify their license details with CASA. And the only way to do that is for CASA to actually contact their country's aviation agency. And this is pretty much where the whole time delay comes. So it's typically not a process that's going to happen quickly. However, you don't need to wait Uh, for that transaction to take place before you can start thinking about, uh, you know, doing some study and getting ready. So essentially what's going to happen is there is a form which you can find online and there's obviously a full CASA website page all about this. And again, I'll put the uh, link in the description for this episode so you can find that easily. 
and it takes you through the whole process. So in short, 614A is the form that you need, and that's where you put all your qualifications. Now, the only, uh, I guess, variation to this is if you are uh, from New Zealand and we have the Trans-Tasman Neutral Agreement in place, which is the TTMA uh, form, you fill that in instead. And that is more of a agreement between Australia and New Zealand that we are happy that we're pretty much like for like, and you can then operate on your New Zealand Class 1 medical at the initial stages of the uh, the rating. To the best of my knowledge, that doesn't work for a private conversion. You have to go through the normal methods. But for a professional um, commercial license, it does because it's all hinged on the New Zealand Class 1 medical. All right. Um so you fill in the form for A, and then that goes to CASA. Then CASA is going to go and write to whatever your country's uh, agency is and verify your details. Eventually, once that's all done, you're going to get a letter. And this is why we can sort of get ahead of the process a little bit. The letter is going to state that you need to uh, do the theory exams for the license you're doing as far as air law and that sort of stuff goes. So there's an overseas air law exam. It's called the PAOS, the CHAOS, or the AOS. Um, Unfortunately, there's not a whole lot of uh, guidance in the MOZ for this, which is a little bit weird, but essentially it's the air law conversion. So just to follow the Australian air law topics in the in the MOZ there, and that's the manual standards, and then uh, that's the bulk of the theory. Then it's radio procedures, licensing, that's all covered in the air law. Get flying to standard to be able to then pass the equivalent flight test for whatever you're applying for. Once that's done, Forms 614B will be completed and filled in, and that's what's going to get sent to CASA. And this avoids the whole need for a training record um, because obviously if you need to be recommended for a flight test, you need the training records to do all that. So this 614A letter of approval that comes in allows all that to happen, and then the Form 4B gets submitted. All right, so people that are trying to convert can do a fair bit before that letter takes place. It sometimes can take months. My recommendations are once the form's been submitted and CAS has indicated that they have contacted your agency, is you drive the show and call them up weekly um, or as appropriate to uh, just make sure they're on it and, and get it done because, yeah, it can drag out depending on who's talking to who. All right. Okay, so hopefully that helps. All right, now today we are going to talk about missed approaches and go-arounds. As I said in the uh, the little opening bit there, a little bit of drama for you, but it is one of these things that is just so easily avoidable um, of having aircraft damage and hard landings, just the the human nature to to push and to say, oh, I'm nearly there, this, it'll be okay, and, and get it down. And... These are the reasons why we have things like stabilised approaches and, you know, being configured by a certain height above the ground. And if not, let's just go around and start again. Anyway, we'll get to that in a sec. Um, I'm sure you've all probably seen a situation like this evolve in front of you. I've seen plenty of uh, aircraft porpoising down the runway, uh, landing on the nose wheel. There's uh, a fantastic video or horrific video, depending on how you look at it, just going around social media at the moment with the the conquest, like if, how a conquest pilot is uh, allowing an aeroplane to do this. But then I've seen airliners and uh, larger military aircraft do exactly the same thing and just bouncing down the nose wheel, porpoising down until usually the second or third time the nose wheel says, no, nah, 
I'm out, completely snaps and shears, and the aircraft comes to a stop on the nose. So when it comes to flying, we all know that making decisions is an integral part of the process. The one decision that carries significant weight is the choice to initiate a go-around or missed approach nice and early. All right. Now, this could be for a number of reasons, and we use the term sometimes interchangeably. You have a go-around or a missed approach, but typically a go-around is a visual maneuver. A missed approach is an instrument approach maneuver. All right. So I might use the two terms here, but they are essentially the same thing. So imagine you're on final, visibility's deteriorated unexpectedly, the winds change, the runway's not clear, or your aircraft configuration, more importantly, is just not right. So it's moments like these when the ability to recognize and act on the need for a go-around can mean the difference between a safe landing and potential disaster or, at very least, aircraft damage. So why is making the decision so crucial and, for some pilots, so hard? Well, ultimately, as we know, it boils down to safety, but pride also plays a part in all this. So if the conditions or circumstances are unfavorable, you've got to have the confidence and the skill to commit to a missed approach. It might feel frustrating to divert from your intended landing, go around, come back around again, people on the ground are watching. There is no lost pride in any of this. This is about safety. And it's your responsibility to ensure the safety of your crew, your passengers, and the aircraft. All right, so here's some top 10 tips to help avoid situations that necessitate a missed approach. And the first one is really good comprehensive pre-flight planning. Now you think, well, hang on, how can I know if I'm going to do a go-around? Well, sometimes go-arounds result from poor planning. So thoroughly researching your destination airport, the weather forecast, the NOTAMs, potential obstructions um, is paramount. All right, so proper pre-flight planning equips you with the knowledge to anticipate challenges and make informed decisions during your flight. Part of that process as well is doing a good strip inspection on arrival if you need to or overflying the airfield and making a good assessment. So many pilots feel like, well, I don't need to do that anymore. I'm not a private pilot. I can just come on in and do a straight-in approach. Well, if you've got all the information at hand, that may be the case. But there are plenty of times we're just doing a quick, simple overfly, have a look at the airstrip, the windsock, especially if it's unfamiliar, can save you a lot of heartache. All right, tip two, embrace the stabilized approach. So maintaining a stabilized approach by adhering to the correct airspeeds, descent rates, and obviously good runway alignment. Stabilized approach significantly diminishes the probability of needing a go-around. Remembering, if these perimeters falter, opting for the go-around is the safer choice. The manual standards has our schedule of tolerances that we're aiming for, and these must be adhered to. Especially in smaller aircraft, you're carrying 5, 10 knots of extra airspeed on final. It's going to result in a float. This prolonged float leaves you more vulnerable to winds, to wind shear, and also chewing up valuable runway distance. The other thing is, from a human factors point of view, is you may well get away with it in those aircraft because you've got plenty of runway ahead. But if you translate those that mental attitude into bigger aircraft later on down the track, you're going to give yourself a scare. All right, tip three, commit to continuous training. So stay sharp. Through regular training sessions, proficiency evaluations, your flight reviews, your proficiency checks, simulate missed approach scenarios um, and make sure that you handle the aircraft properly and you're dealing with those things. So the process of manual 
uh, sorry, man, what are called? Retractable undercarriage. <laughs> Not manual propeller pitch control. So retractable undercarriage. Um, do I go flap, gear, flap, gear, flap, 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 gear, flap, flap? What's the combination? How's that going to affect the the climb performance of the aircraft dealing with the initial sink? All right, a lot of pilots will try to do a go around, point the nose to the sky and clean everything up at the same time. Remember, flap is a source of lift. If you dump the lift, you've got to replace it with either angle attack or airspeed. If that hasn't happened, you're going to sink. So it's quite okay to fly level initially, clean the aircraft up, and then adopt the climb attitude. It doesn't all have to happen at once. Tip four, constantly monitoring weather conditions. So weather can transform rapidly, particularly during approach and landing phases. It's not uncommon at all to have varying wind directions and strengths low to the ground. All right, so vigilantly monitor weather updates. Check your TAF, check your AWIS, check your ATIS if it's available to you. Otherwise, apps like Windy can give you a very good indication of what the wind is doing. Make sure you're on surface level, then bump it up to 1,000 feet, 3,000 feet, and just see what the wind is doing. This will allow you to adjust your approach strategy. And if things deteriorate beyond your comfort zone or look like they are, have a plan already decided so that you know you've got options. Tip five, enhance your situational awareness. So developing that strong situational awareness is vital. Acknowledge your surroundings, be aware of potential threats, and be prepared to act swiftly if the, the, the situation demands a missed approach. Tip six, master effective communication. So maintain crystal clear communication with air traffic control and other traffic. If you sense impeding safety concerns, don't hesitate to tell them. And, and articulate your apprehensions and your intentions. If they give you a clearance that you're not able to comply with, tell them that you can't and then give them the solution that's going to work for you. Air traffic controllers are your allies and they're there to ensure safe operations. If you're dealing with other aircraft, then make sure you let them know what your plan is and be specific and be accurate. Don't leave it as a big mystery as to what you're actually going to do so they don't know how they're going to separate themselves from you. Tip seven, stay mindful of terrain and obstacles. So take note of the surrounding terrain and potential obstacles during an approach and landing. This can obviously be straight ahead in front of you, in the missed approach, and everything to the side. Remember if the wind's a crosswind and there's buildings, terrain, obstacles, either side of the runway, this is going to churn up the airflow and potentially give you some control issues. So heightened awareness minimizes the chance of encountering last-minute surprises that could necessitate a missed approach. Tip eight, utilize your advanced navigation systems. So leverage advanced navigation systems to increase accuracy during the approach. So this is things like GPS. Have a look at your ground speed on base and compare it to your indicated airspeed. If it's lower, you're pushing into a headwind, which means once we turn final, it's going to be a crosswind. You might have tailwind on final. In this case, your ground speed is going to be higher than your indicated airspeed. This will all give you an indication that maybe we're pointing the wrong way and that's going to result in a float and long landing. So all this information is there if you learn how to use it. If you're using other glass cockpit information, you're going to have wind vectors and headwind crosswind components. You can set it up all different ways. Use that information. It'll give you an idea of what's going on. 
But ultimately, one of the best sources is the windsock. Usually there's one very near to the threshold of the approach end of the runway. Not always. But if it is, look at it. Pilots sometimes get so fixated on looking at the runway that they forget to actually just look at the windsock and see what it's doing. This will tell you a lot about the conditions on the land and what you're about to encounter from handling point of view. All right, tip nine, trust your instincts. Your intuition as a pilot is a powerful tool. If something doesn't feel right, whether it's the weather, the visibility, the aircraft configuration, your speed, your height, trust your instincts and go for a go-around early. It's so important. All right, and tip 10, foster a safety-first mindset. So just cultivate a safety-first mindset as a cornerstone of your aviation practices. This mentality ensures that the safety remains at the forefront of every decision you make, from flight planning, takeoff, landing, and packing up and driving home. All right, so as we wrap up, the biggest thing I want to emphasize is that the decision to execute execute a missed approach or go around is not a sign of failure. It's a mark of your professionalism and airmanship and dedication to safety. I can tell you right now, I would much rather see someone do a missed approach, come around and do a good landing and recognize why it was wrong than trying to push a bad situation. Aviation industry is going to value pilots who prioritize safety above all else. Remember, a missed approach is a tool in your toolkit. Knowing when and how to use it is a skill that can save you from an embarrassing situation and even save lives. So by following the 10 tips that we've discussed, you can greatly enhance your ability to make informed decisions and reduce the likelihood of needing a go-around. All right, guys, thank you very much for tuning in and listening. That is it for today. Remember, if you've got any comments, questions or feedback, you can get hold of me via email. You can uh, message me, Instagram, Facebook, uh, what else we've got there? Instagram, LinkedIn, they're all there. And if you love the show and you want to support me, you can uh, help me out by becoming a Patreon member. Patrons, uh, three tiers of membership. It's fully tax deductible and all the uh, the money going there helps uh, support me and the time I put into producing all of this and videos of which I have got a couple coming. I keep telling you this, but there's two, nearly ready. <laughs> all right. Um, if you want to know more about that, you can go to patreon.com forward slash flight trading Australia. All the links to everything are in the episode description that you are listening to now, wherever in Australia or the world that may be. All right. All going to plan. I've got a great interview for you next week and uh, look forward to bringing that to you. Until then, blue skies and remember the golden rule. Aviate, navigate, communicate and go around. All right. Cheers, everyone. Cheers, everyone.